Hello, and welcome back to the Resiliency Ninja podcast. This is Allison Graham, and my guest today, if you follow me on social media, you will know his name because I have had the privilege of being on his podcast called Everyday MBA twice, and I thought I'd return the favor, but today's guest is Kevin Crane. Welcome to the show. (laughs) It's great to be on. Thank you so much. Isn't it fun to be on the other side of the microphone? It can be. I will find out. (laughs) (laughs) Because I remember, and I I told the story when I was last on your Everyday MBA podcast, but I remember you were one of the very first podcasts I was ever on when I didn't even understand what a podcast was. That's right. I remember you were on way back uh, with with your first book. Was it uh, which book was it? The um, business relationships, not business cards. I'm getting that all wrong. Yeah, no business cards, business me. relationships. That's right. Got it. That's, That's right. right. Fantastic discussion. It was so okay. I'm going to read a little bit of your just some of your highlights from your bio, okay. and of course, I'll have your whole bio in the show notes for people so they can reach out to you and of course listen to your podcast, but. He's not just a podcast host, folks. No, he's not. He is a professional writer, an internationally respected technology analyst. I can't wait to figure out what that is. And an award-winning podcast producer. His podcasts have been heard around the world, and he interviews some really cool thought leaders. I like to think of myself on that list, so thank you. Uh, But he's also the host and producer of BizCast on C-Suite Radio and the producer behind podcasts for, is it AIM International or is it AI? Yeah, AIM International, Epson, Canon, and IBM, among others. He has worked with global leaders from these huge companies. I want to talk about what it's like to do that as well. And... uh, you know, I think that's enough. I think we're just going to... That is enough. Are, that, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> well, it sounds pretty good when you put it like that. <laughs> well, you know, it always wasn't that case, right? Like you were in corporate, you were in a corporate job 15 years ago and then got downsized. So A, what were you doing back then? Well, I came up through information technology and I was uh, with a large insurance company um, working in their information technology and document processing systems. Um, we had four states of responsibility. And um, yeah, you're right. Been Had been working there and working my way up as most people do, uh, you know, kind of a young professional um, and had worked my way up and, and uh, gotten my graduate degree and worked my way into middle management. Um, and then one day, like can happen, uh, myself and 200 other uh, middle managers were you know, kind of called into the office and, and, and let go. It was, it was like a week before Christmas. So it was, it was kind of a big bloodletting there right before Christmas for me and, and several of my colleagues. Um, and then it was now what for me, here I was uh, a young dad, I had kids in preschool and in my early forties. And um, it wasn't a great time <laughs> to try to find work, uh, especially work that was going to pay me about the same. And, and, and locally here, I'm in Portland, Oregon. So um, we wanted to stay locally. We had roots here. And so it was a really trying time to be, um, to sort of be laid off in, in that way. And I think a lot of people fo- you know, face that, that in their lives. And that's, you know, certainly part of being resilient is surviving through that. For sure. And that immediate reaction to getting let go, especially when you know that it's, it's not even about you because your performance as a middle manager wasn't the impetus 
for losing your job. You say 200 people lost it all at once. What, what is that emotional roller coaster that you go through or that you went through? Yeah, of course, I had a lot of mixed emotions. I, I was sort of, um, it was sort of a blind side, to be honest. You know, I was kind of voted off the island with no real warning. Um, so I was a little bit shocked and had been working really hard on behalf of my responsibilities there. Um, but at the same time, it, it also wasn't a big surprise since I was in management. I'd been working in, you know, budgeting for four states and I knew the pressures of the organization and, and I knew my vice president well. We'd worked closely together. And so I understood um, from the business point of view, I think, where it needed to happen or why it was happening. Uh, but then on a personal point of view, I was, um, I was, I was shocked and, and a little bit saddened. And I guess now thinking about it now at this moment, um, a little saddened, uh, frankly, and disappointed that there wasn't more effort to try to keep me around in some sort of capacity. <laughs> I would have, would have certainly enjoyed that uh, possibility since I had a couple of kids and was raising a family. Um, and so I, I felt disappointed that there wasn't a little bit more loyalty associated with the whole event, but from a business standpoint, understood it. So I had a lot of mixed emotions. I got to tell you though, Allison, I really wasn't that happy there. Um, okay. So that was so, going to be my next question. If you would have stuck around, would you have truly figured uh, out your path? Right. Well, it's only after years of therapy that <laughs> I've come <laughs> to this realization, of course. I uh, can say. Yeah. Uh, yes. You know, extensive psychotherapy, but, uh, <laughs> no. but, but the, the perspective is that, you know, it was in a way the best decision that was made for me ever because um, I probably would not have made, would not have had the courage to make the jump to be an independent freelancer, an entrepreneur on my own and sort of mortgaged myself in that way as a dad, you know. Um, and so it was probably, it, it was the best thing that could have happened to me, even though I would have not had made that decision on my own at the time. Um, and so moving forward, it opened a lot of great doors. And now I have a career that, you know, that I love that has been much more lucrative than it probably would have been other, otherwise. Uh, and I've learned a, a ton, a lot of, a ton of things along the way that, that I'm proud to have picked up and, and, and have brought into who I am as a person and a professional. With the, the and, and it pushed you specifically more, I would almost say into the art side of technology. Well, that's the blessing part of it. You know, I, I have always been a creator um, and, and an artistic person. Um, and I think there are many folks in business today that are just exactly like that. I meet them all the time, folks that are musicians or painters or dancers or writers or whatever it might be. Um, and that often has to take a backseat to what you do in terms of your profession. Not everybody can be a rock star or a, or a famous poet or whatever you might be. Um, so for me, I had that opportunity to make a step into a more creative kind of role as a writer and a marketing person and a content creator, podcaster. Um, and so that has been a, a blessing that I've been able to find a way to blend more about what I'm about in terms of me as a person or my little soul or whatever, and overlay that into the things that I do for work. And I think that is something that I am lucky to have. Exactly. And I think something that our listeners, if they're not feeling that level of satisfaction in their corporate world, may, I hope that comment will twing for you a little bit of, you know, that artistic side might be feeling very buried. Yes. And so then you become miserable because you get up in the morning and you go to work and you're in a cubicle or whatever it is. And none of that is being fed. 
Um, now it, it, it can work. It has worked for me in the past. I, I'm a guitarist and a composer. And um, so there were certainly lots of opportunity for me to do that in my own time, but it became more and more difficult with young kids and, you know, mortgage to pay and, and all of those demands that you're right, that artistic side of you with whatever it is um, can often take a back seat. And so um, as a freelancer, you, you may have the opportunity to blend a bit of that. Um, certainly in ways maybe that you hadn't considered that you could make, you know, a living doing something similar or being creative at the very least. Right. And knowing, okay, so now you, you've lost your job. Did you have a few weeks where you kind of sat on the couch and were just like in shock mm -hmm. or did you go, okay, what am I going to do? And like get wow. right to it. <laughs> well, unfortunately, uh, I, I, I hit the ground running at, you know, I, uh, was not ready to sit back and, and just sort of lick my wounds. I hit the ground running right away and, and, started getting my resume out there. I had you know, a pretty good strong resume and an and MBA on, on my side. Um, and I did bounce around a few jobs here and there, um, but they weren't meeting my criteria in terms of the amount of money I wanted to spend and, and just the hassle. It, it wasn't a great fit. So finally I realized, look, I need to take control of my own career um, and, and, put some actions forward that give me the power. I was lucky that my wife um, was working as well and, and very type A type of executive. And so, um, and, and so that was a good fit for her. Um, so it allowed her to step forward as, you know, the primary uh, breadwinner, at least at that time during that transition. And then I stayed home um, and made the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and took the kids to school and started freelancing. And so it was a really great fit for me also um, as a person, because, um, you know, I love being a dad. They're both in college now and gone, but um, I loved being a dad. And that, and it was also a blessing in disguise that then I had the opportunity to be with my kids um, in ways that a lot of dads that are going off and traveling or, you know, working 60, 70 hours a week, you know, don't necessarily have. So uh, it was a good for, fit for us as, as, a, as a married couple and a family. Awesome. And now, okay, so podcasting, because 15 yes. years ago, podcasting was still relatively new or just, was it already established underground and I didn't know it? Or like, what, how did I come so late to this game? I don't know, but because <laughs> <laughs> is that where you first started or did you first start with mm -hmm. the writing? It is a slow burn with, uh, with podcasting. You know, it's, it's, I was podcasting before podcasting was, was cool at all. Um, one of the things, what had worked for me and what I suggest for folks that are sort of thinking, well, will I get laid off or, gee, I'd really like to be a freelancer, you know, what Kevin is describing is something that I'd like to do. How do I make that transition? For me, um, one of the things that I had started to do while still, you know, in my field and employed was to write. Um, as a practitioner in my field in, in information processing, there, there are trade magazines and other places that you can publish. And I like to write. And so I would, uh, I started writing on the subject um, and that led me, and I, I was in grad school at the time that led me to have the, the bright idea of writing a book about it's called designing a document strategy was published in, in the year 2000 became kind of well known in, in the document processing industry at the time. And what I, was doing was really taking the, the the ideas that I was learning in graduate school. I was also being trained as a as a TQM coach. Total quality management was was a big thing at the time. So I was taking those concepts and ideas 
and putting them to my own industry and writing articles and collecting a body of content along those lines um, that then eventually led me to writing a book. And then that book got some attention um, and then allowed me to have a platform to move forward and have the courage to go into freelance writing or start my own career as a practitioner because of the power of that book. And you're an author, you know, the power of that book is not necessarily of writing a book is not necessarily in the number of books that you sell or the money that you make from the revenue of the book, but the establishment of yourself as a knowledge leader in your space. And that was, that was the critical point for me that made the difference. It wasn't me just going out and saying, well, I'm going to be a writer. I don't know what I'm going to write about and I'm going to compete with every other writer in the world for whatever gig I can get. It was a more focused um, attention on a certain niche of the industry and writing in that particular niche. And that was the, the secret sauce or the spark that started um, my career as a freelancer and has continued to fuel my success um, in, in a very similar way all the way throughout. So what, okay, which book is this? Where, where is it still in publication? It, it certainly is still in publication, Designing a Document Strategy, Kevin Crane. You can still get it out there um, on, on Amazon and others. Um, and one of the things that I am proud about is that many of the processes and tools in that book are based upon uh, a foundation of, of, of some really uh, proven techniques in total quality management, change management, technology assessment, and so forth. So it can be used for any uh, technological or process improvement initiative. Um, and that's why I think it still continues to sell here after all this time. Uh, people are still uh, buying the book and, and using it. And well, how neat is that? It is a need. And when you write a book, um, you, you hope that it helps folks. And it's been great throughout the years to get uh, emails. Or I'll, In fact, last week I was just at a technology conference and I had a couple of people come up to me and say, are you that guy that wrote that book way back then? I still have that on my <laughs> shelf. You know, we're still using some of the, you know, and that made me feel really good that um, that made that made a difference. Oh, how fun. Okay. Well, and that is neat. And when you have evergreen content, it's nice to have a long shelf life. Oh, sure. And, you know, I could go on about evergreen, making that content evergreen. Um, I'm still using some of that content these days. Even today, I'll pull back out some pieces and parts uh, because they're still valid. Uh, like i pulled out a piece in part on change management the other day. P people are still struggling with change management. Um, no matter what technology or process they're trying to achieve, there's always the barrier of how people are going to react to that change. And so some of the principles that I wrote about 15 years ago in my book are still very, very valuable today, even though the technologies or the processes that we're improving or, or modifying may have changed or morphed. Um, the idea that humans are humans <laughs> right. and they tend to resist change um, is, is still with us. And so um, it's, it's uh, an, often an overt uh, tactic by myself to look at content that I have created in the past and how it could either re be repurposed or reutilized re or resold um, in ways that continue to add value and, and revenue for me as, as a business. Very cool. Now, the, I, I, I almost want to go a little bit into change management, if you're cool with that. I just want to sure. uh, yeah. <laughs> get some of your thoughts on that. And like, I mean, I, I go into companies, we've talked about this, the, the change management and have my own perspectives and views on that. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is that people, why they're resisting change so much? 
Well, it's a natural and emotional reaction that all humans have with change. And um, one of the models that I think is helpful to to consider is the old Elizabeth Kubler-Ross model of death and dying. When, when, when folks, when you, when you have a passing of a loved one, you go through several stages that, that people go through that first is denial and uh, the other is anger. Uh, I forget exactly the order, but there's a there's often an order and a process that people go through. Um, and so when you change someone's job, it's not unlike that sort of grief that folks have when you've changed my complete job, maybe you have brand new tools or I'm not working in the same place I used to, or I'm in a new department. I have all kinds of new responsibilities. That means it's the death of the way things have always been. And people, all of us get comfortable in our routines. We feel competent and, and, and uh, we have a certain level of expertise in what it is that we do everything from the, the humblest job to the most complex. Um, and so when that apple cart is upset, it's our natural first reaction to sort of resist change. I, kn I know I'm like that. I, I don't even like to park in a different parking lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, I, if I go to work every day, it's probably, I'm going to probably park in that same slot if I, you know, if I could get it. Um, and so while that's just a, a minor change, the bigger ones that we face really also have a certain threat that is often just as big a threat as say, perhaps the passing of a loved one. You're, you're threatening my job. You're, you're threatening, will I be late? For example, today, lots of folks are talking about things like automation, robotic process automation, and so forth. Will that eliminate my job? Will a, will a bot take over my job? And so I'm, I'm afraid of that change, even though I may be a technologist or whatever. I'm afraid of automation because I may not have a job tomorrow. Um, so that is why I think people resist change. And as technologists and process managers, we need to accept that that is going to happen, um, even with folks that have the best intentions. Um, and the folks that maybe aren't as mature or have the best intentions are actually going to try to do things to sabotage that effort or postpone it or, or discredit it in some way. Oh, it'll blow over, you know, and then we'll be back to doing it the old way, you know. And so that all gets in the way of implementing change and improvement in processes. And so a great deal of my book, a whole chapter was dedicated to that idea and understanding that it is going to happen and techniques that you can do to help folks get over that gap and that get, get on board with the change. Um, awesome. I will be sure to put a link to your book in the show notes so folks can okay. uh, read it because I think that sounds very, uh, very valuable okay. and very has good. a really great uh, uh, insight there. Now, you have managed to work with some really big companies and I, I don't want to pick on these companies because I think they're amazing and they've done great jobs. And I also want to recognize that as a freelancer, a solo solution provider, it can be very difficult, at least in my past, uh, this has been my experience, to work with a big mammoth of a company. And maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I think that there, like there's a discrepancy, right? Like a solopreneur and then these big, huge companies have a lot of bureaucracy often. Um, I remember, you know, some projects I did with some big ones. It was like, okay, you got to hurry up. Hey, we've got this meeting tomorrow at 10 a.m. I need this, 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 and this. And then I'd stay up all night and get it done. And then I wouldn't hear from anybody for three weeks, right? <laughs> right. And I don't know if that was just me. But 
what is your experience working with these huge companies? And what advice do you have for not just me, but are also our listeners who may be solopreneurs and working into corporate? Well, it can be frustrating, um, but that's part of the gig. And what I try to do is give folks the feeling that they have a resource that they're not going to need to have to worry about. There are so many other things to worry about and balance and juggle the expectations of the, of the food chain up and down the line um, and the just the complexities of trying to work within large teams and some of them global uh, expectations and, and deliverables can change at a, a moment's notice. So the first thing you need to understand is that that is just going to happen. And part of your job is to remain flexible and upbeat about that kind of stuff. Um, it can help to be sure that you have your process nailed down well. In other words, as a writer, it can help to really be sure that you're taking good notes and then verifying that that was what was said and heard. Um, constructing good outlines for your project before you move forward so that stakeholders can look at that and you know maybe they'll change it, maybe it'll be different than what they said they wanted. But before you move forward, make sure that everyone approves of your approach and has buy-in on your outline, for example, so that then when you do put effort into the actual product, for example, um, then, then you know that you're more than likely going to hit the mark. And then if you don't hit the mark, just remember that that's part of, of the process. Um, sometimes it's good to build in governors or boundaries within your proposal that can protect you from scope creep or, or deliverables, um, uh, whether that is you know, the deliverable be, will be on a such and such a date. And then two weeks thereafter, if we don't hear from you, we'll assume that it's been approved or whatever, so that you don't have this, you know, I, I've been in situations where I put a lot of work into a, a product and then you put it out for review and they just need to say, okay, and you get paid. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But then it takes forever for them to say, okay, and now I'm waiting for my payment. And so if it becomes an issue, then you just have to look at your own processes and remember how would a professional service provider really approach all of this and what kind of things can I put into my process to make them feel good and confident and also protect me and make me feel good and confident that everything will move forward with my interests in mind as well. Right. And because I think sometimes some companies, the big one, it, it, those little, okay, yes, check mark can actually take longer than the nanosecond it's going to take for them to put the check mark on the paper. Yes. yes. Right. Like you don't need three weeks to do it, but they're just so busy and have so much stuff on their list already that it can slip their mind. And sometimes if they've never worked in a small business, sing for your supper kind of environment, they don't realize that if you mm -hmm. don't get the check mark, you don't actually get paid. Well, and if you can get paid ahead, uh, it's not always possible, but whenever I can, I try to negotiate for, um, well, certainly a standard would be half down, yeah. a retainer of half and then half when it's done. So at least you feel good that you, you got half down. So if everything goes gunny sack, at least, you know, at least you got your retainer of half or, right. or, or to, or to, to work. Many of my clients pay me, um, I've been able to transition to where they're paying ahead. So folks are, it's April 1st today here as we're talking, um, not everyone, but a number of my clients are, are, have paid me for the work that I will do for them in April. 
So are you, um, it sounds like you're doing more long-term engagements and return business as opposed to living in what I, you know, would consider Mm -hmm. the gig economy that most freelancers Mm -hmm. are unfortunately living in. And to explain that from my thinking is, you know, uh, freelancers, okay, I've got a big project or a small project, and then I'm going to take my foot off the gas and not think about what's coming in in two months from now. I'm only going to focus on today. And then they mm-hmm. finish, and then they go, oh my gosh, I need I need next month's stuff, uh, like money. So it sounds like you've found a way to get repeat business with some of these bigger companies. Like that, that to me sounds a bit more retainer-ish if they're paying yes. you in advance. Yes. The subscription model was a big breakthrough for me about halfway through um, – my career so far, um, I was struggling with exactly what you're talking about. You would buy a piece or per project engagement. Those are great. Uh, I still do them, of course. But um, then when that project is done, to get that client back on your books again, to receive more revenue stream from that client, you need to then re-engage, you know, kind of re-brainstorm the next project. Uh, And that between meetings and delays, as you mentioned, I mean, that could take months. And so getting that horse to ride again, if you will, um, you know, that just, like you said, it can leave a big hole. And when you're a freelancer, that can be the, that's the biggest thing that keeps you up at night. It's great when money is coming in, but then when it isn't coming in, this fluctuation and the non-steadiness of the income can be a real challenge. And so that that's definitely something to consider if you're making the move to be a freelancer, understand that that will happen. And then adopting a subscription model or a re- retainer model is one way to help battle that. And so what I would, what I would, potentially do, especially with a happy client is say, look, or one that is wanting to retain me for multiple projects or different types of projects. As a writer, you might be working on some web stuff and maybe they have some blog content that they need in a white paper or maybe, you know, whatever it might be, podcasting or webinars, a variety of things, which is another tip. Diversify. And in other words, if I was just a writer and all I did was blogs or all I did was press releases, that would only be a small fraction of what people hire me to do. So always look for ways to to diversify in either what it is that you do as a, say in this case, a writer. But podcasting was an, it was an outgrowth of that. Well, I'm, I'm a writer. I like to podcast. Well, how about if I podcast for other people or create podcasts for other folks? Another way of diversifying what I do and can provide as opposed to just simply staying as a PR writer or whatever. Um, but that subscription model. I just want to take a staccato note because I actually, (laughs) I I know of two listeners of the Resiliency Ninja podcast who are freelancers Mm -hmm. (laughs) who have this very issue. And I want to just give them a shout out. I won't say their names, but just say, listen, uh, think about that. What other, like, can you get away from just doing the PR press release? Can you get away from just doing the web content and expand beyond that? I love that advice. Absolutely. So thoughtful. You've got to diversify. That's a key thing. You've got to diversify. Um, and for me, that meant writing. Uh, that then moved into podcasting. That then led me into voiceover because people liked my voice. So now I'm doing just straight up voiceovers and book narrations. Um, and then that led also to video production for me because I started realizing as a writer, less and less folks are reading longer pieces. It's more about short pieces. And indeed, we like audio, but 
who's king right now in this video. And so it totally made sense to start producing videos as well uh, and doing the voiceover and writing the scripts for those videos um, as well. I'm a marketing writer. If I can write a white paper for you, I should be able to write a, a, a script for your video and then narrate that and then produce that and then extend that to, well, what is your message? And you know, what is important that needs to be said in this video and how is, so it starts like a snowball rolling on top of each other and expanding out in more and more ways that I can provide service to my clients. Whereas 10 years ago, I was really battling other writers for that press release gig or that website gig. Um, whereas now it's a much more uh, expanded, diversified service services that I can provide. And I suspect your clients love that because they know they can come with you and then you're solving the overall issue yeah. of communication in all the different facets for that one project. That's right. They know that they have one place they can go to and depending on what they need, sometimes it's like, here, Kevin, this is exactly what we want. We want you to talk about this, this, and this in this such a way, go do it and bring it back to us. And so I, I like that. Or other times they say, you know what? We don't quite know what our message is. And we don't know quite know how to say it. What what do you recommend? And so then there might be a more of a discovery, uh, discovery process about well, what is important for this company in 2019. What are the key messages? Where do those? Where does that audience hang out? And how can we reach them? And what is our approach to communicating to them? And that that's a much bigger discussion than simply being a writer that might compete for you know, ten cents a word or whatever it might be. Um, right. So, but right. then, but then, then with all of that, then if you can build it into a monthly, a monthly program, how about if I said to you, Allison, this is great. I could, you know, I've been writing for you. I've done your website. We've done some other things. How about if we made a program that provided you with this, these content pieces that would go on throughout the year, say every quarter we do a video and every month we do, you know, a podcast and every week we're doing a blog post and then we have a certain amount of press release, whatever it might be in a, in a whole, in a whole thing that we schedule um, in an editorial calendar. Now, you know, these pieces will be created at certain times. There might be some, some talking that we need to do up front about what all of that is. But at that point, then Allison can go back and run her business while knowing that content machine is, is now running forward, moving forward. And you don't have to worry about it, knowing that you have that solution on board. And it's, less expensive for you because if it's bundled all up in a monthly thing, I'll give you a nice discount over what I would normally charge per piece. So now you've saved money and you put in a system and you can relax a little bit more. Um, and for me, it's great because now I have a client that I know is coming back every month. And if I have, you know, two or three or a handful of those, that's, that that's my business. That's, that's my year, you know? So from a freelancing standpoint, I love it because it's more steady and more predictable and I feel uh, I'm more of a team member um, along the way. And so it's a much, it's a much better, more rich relationship for everyone involved. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I really think that's a wise to do. Now, you did mention something that's more of a technical piece that I wanted to pick up on about shorter pieces versus longer pieces and the yeah. reading versus video. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I still catch myself reading 1,500 word articles on the internet and loving every minute of it. And am I the anomaly or is there like, um, because I, I don't know, is, is, do you feel like eventually we're going to go from having all these short snippets to, 
wanting more hunger and more depth or is it just a different mood that you're in like even from a video perspective one of my favorites to watch is impact impact theory is uh, a favorite and those are a good hour most of them mm -hmm. right and i love it so i know we say this and yet what's happening out in the marketplace well i think there is a trend toward shorter content for sure but um to me my answer is always well all of the above as, as a okay. content creator and a marketer for example it's really all of the above um it, it, it's it's and it kind of depends on your audience and where they are in their journey with you or it, uh, as other folks might put it the the funnel you know the the, the sales funnel um to to attract attention to begin with, I think short, punchy video kind of content um, is most effective. Uh, someone that's just flying by that maybe doesn't know about you or you know, you're, they're going to discover you, it's unlikely that that is going to happen through a 1500 word article. Now maybe, maybe it will, um, but to me that's a little farther down the funnel. Oh, okay, I know of uh, this company or I know of the topic and I have a certain degree of interest that will then, if this article now is interesting to me or maybe that short piece of content that was very bite-sized led me to that now I'm a little bit more interested and so I'm willing to invest a little bit more time into that article however that style of article I think has changed in my time even that 1500 word article it's more likely that a successful 1500 article today word article today is has been written in a much more bite-sized and consumable way than maybe it was 10 years ago uh, right, because it would right. have, they do use bigger fonts, really short paragraphs often, ads in between, images in between. And you know, it's, it's not like a plain, you know, Roman times numeral, whatever. Not like it used to be. Yeah. Right. And it's an outgrowth of our society today. That's what we see and consume. And, and certainly younger people that are coming into business, I mean, that is their whole paradigm you know i'm old enough to still be an old dog remembering you know before the internet was even around or whatever but right but the, but the folks that are in their 20s and 30s now they were raised on this whole they were raised on youtube they were raised on instagram they were raised on this short punchy content so um that's why i think there's a definite trend and, and a definite opportunity to make sure that we reset our minds as marketers and content creators that we're keeping that in mind however there just is no replacement for more in-depth content, especially in the field that I work in, which is tends to be high tech marketing. Um, there are going to be those times there is that time in that funnel when you need to set your knowledge in, you know, you, you need to set your stake in the ground as a knowledge leader. And oftentimes that's exploring different topics in depth that show that, you know, what you're talking about that you are relating with your audience in terms of what their pain points are or their opportunities are and set yourself up as a knowledge leader in your field or your niche, which brings me to maybe another uh, tip for success that work, has worked for me and I bring to my clients. And that is the idea of finding and working your niche. For me, it was a, a natural outgrowth for me to become a writer in the document processing and information processing fields, because that was my, my profession. Uh, I'm, I'm a writer and I've written about all kinds of subjects, but um, the one that provides the most value to my clients is, is the one that 
I have some expertise in. So it was, it was a conscious choice for me moving forward to whenever I could write under my own name in that field so that people associated Kevin Crane with writing in intelligent information management or the ECM or the content management field so that my name was associated with that. And then now more and more folks are coming to me to write for them under my own name. Um, it used to be I was mostly a ghostwriter and, and built a reputation for being a good ghostwriter. I still do that. But more and more of the engagements now I have are people that want me to write for them, but also attach my name to it. And so that has provided more work for me, but also more high dollar work, high value work, because I tend to frankly charge a little bit more um, if my name is associated with it. And if you're being appended to my at least tacit endorsement as a podcast host or a writer. Right. So that, uh, because a lot of freelancers, you're right, don't put their name necessarily on something or seek out, they might get so busy doing the other stuff that they're, they have to do. Correct. That they might not take the opportunity to figure out where to go. How do sure. people go to get, I mean, this is something on my mind. I know it's on a lot of people's mind, but how do you go and get published really well, like in those niche markets, once you've identified your niche? Well, for me, it, it, it is, it's common that industries have trade magazines and other media outlet outlets that are associated with them. And, and podcasting can also be a really um, good place to do that. My first podcast that started me was a podcast called the document strategy podcast. It was an ancillary outgrowth of my book, designing a document strategy. So when I started my podcast, I would narrate parts of pieces of my book um, as evaluated content to the audience that, encouraged people to go check out my book and, and get it. And that was great. But then that led me to have a voice in that particular niche. Um, and then, so, and then writing in that particular niche, often an outgrowth from my book or parts and pieces from my book would be repurposed to do articles for trade magazines and websites um, in that, in that particular industry. I, I'm lucky because I'm in the doc, the document processing, information processing, technology industry. So it's rather rich with that kind of stuff. But, you know, um, I have uh, friends and associates, especially in the podcasting world. One um, is uh, an expert on horses, horse breeding and horse training, right? So that was their passion and, and their expertise. And so these folks are like the leading podcast and the leading content creators about training horses. And what a great, what a great way to blend what you love with how you make money. And so um, for me, it was pretty closely related to what I had already been doing as, um, as a profession, but for other folks, it might mean a complete switch over to, you know, horse horses, or I'm a guitarist. I, you know, I've often dreamed of making that transition to being a content creator in the musical instrument industry. Uh, mm. and, and I think that would be a, uh, would have been and could be a really great transition for me, but, or, or, or but you get my idea, maybe yeah. whatever it is, whatever drives your passion, whatever you feel you have an expertise in or will develop and can develop an expertise in. I, I wasn't an expert in many of the things or am still not. I don't consider myself to be a, an, an expert per se in many of the things that I do write about, but I am an expert in understanding what the key points are um, and, and creating content that resonate to people in that industry. And that's my magic uh, contribution to it. And I, I let other experts often help guide me in terms of the expertise that I don't have. 
That's awesome. Well, and you have interviewed a lot of experts on your Everyday MBA podcast, very popular podcast. It's out there. What is your favorite part of doing that podcast? I'll tell you what, I've had the opportunity to speak with so many great authors and thought leaders throughout, I guess, the four years that I've been doing Everyday MBA, and I always learn a ton. What I'm always thinking about is what helped you be successful and what made a difference for you as a, as a, as a business person. And I've just learned a ton. I learned about the subscription economy from uh, Kelman Baxter. Oh, forgot her last first name. Oh, anyway, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm so sorry that I don't remember. Uh, that's all right. When you interview so many people, I like, have, tough, right? Anyway, like, that's so, weekly, but. but I have brought those on, on board. Um, those concepts like the subscription economy, the gig economy, uh, those uh, then I've learned and brought on board. So I've had an opportunity to learn. I learned from your interview and in terms of how to go and make business relationships more fruitful and more uh, more engaged, not just a, like you say, a business card or an entry into, you know, my LinkedIn network or whatever, but really how to work those and nurture those relationships so they become more fruitful and more value added for both. Um, and it's just two examples of uh, what I've learned along the way. And I think that that has been really helpful for me because then that bring those, those perspectives, even if they're just kind of blatantly underneath the surface, as you can tell, I don't remember every detail, but it brings forth a richness of exposure to diff different approaches to the ways people do business and how they do their manage their careers that then has added value to what I do and added value to me in building my career, my business. That's awesome. You know, I, what I find with podcasting is that it keeps me on my toes of and immersed in the idea of personal and professional development. So even though I'm someone who would, you know, read books and, and is constantly, you know, trying to absorb information by having the opportunity to interview people like yourself or be on podcasts even, then I'm, I'm sort of in that routine of learning at another level. Yes. Yes. And oh, by the way, that was Robbie Kelman Baxter, oh, you <laughs> the found membership economy. Guy. Now I remember the book. Awesome. Um, you know, and so I, I recommend that particular book if folks are interested in the membership economy or the, the subscription model. That that was what really set me in motion, and that was a big difference for me in in terms of of uh, how a big impact for my business. It went from you know a struggling one to a six figure income. I think as a result. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And look at that. You're such a podcast host because you brought us into the uh, famous now fast five questions that are not that fast. Okay. <laughs> or I ask all my guests at the end of the interview, these five questions that I originally wrote down as five fast questions and uh, they've never yet been fast. So okay. that's okay. Here we go. <laughs> the first one is a book that changed your life and you just answered it, but maybe there's another one you'd like to share with us. Well, I think there's been so many books. Uh, I've had the pleasure of reading a ton of books and interviewing so many authors that I would be leaving a bazillion people out. But Robbie Kelman Baxter's Membership Economy was one. I think, to be honest, I think the, my, my favorite book was, I think, my very first interview uh, with Everyday MBA. And that was um, The Barefoot Spirit. Um, <laughs> uh, Allison, you're making me look bad. I can't remember the authors, the barefoot spirit. And, um, 
and the barefoot spirit tells the story of these two business business consultants that were working with um a client and he was a winemaker and things didn't go really well <laughs> for for this client and he, and he had to leave them payment in grapes and bottling services now these were business consultants they didn't have any knowledge about uh the uh, the wine industry and they then took the bottling services and the grapes and they started their own wine company called the called barefoot wine and you may be familiar with barefoot wine I am. Yeah. well because they're part of the c-suite network so the names are bonnie Two, harvey uh, michael holohan Hulahan, Hulahan, and michael Hulahan. thank you so much for that you see i you know my memory is just not what it used to be but of course Bonnie and Michael from Barefoot Spirit, my favorite interview. In fact, I've interviewed them twice. The Barefoot Spirit's my favorite business book. They tell their story of, of not only how that came about, but how they took on what at the time was a rather stuffy wine industry and some of the techniques that they used, like putting little stickers on the floor from the door of the, of the wine shop or whatever that would walk all the way down to where their bottles were on the bottom shelf, you know, shelf space like cereal and for wine and beer is very competitive. So all the, the big brand names had the nice shelves and the fancy looking, you know, everything. And here was barefoot spirit on the bottom and they were purposely trying to be a little bit purposely trying to be more casual and embracing than stuffy wines. And you'd have, have these these footprints that would lead you to that bottom shelf where you'd pick out the wine and sure enough that and a number of stories and tactics that they talk about in their book and in the interview that was really a grassroots sort of approach to building that wine company and then they ended up building it to America's number one one wine brand and selling it to Gallo for an undisclosed amount and I just think that's an American success story one that I'm just so pleased to talk about when in ever anybody asks because you know i don't know bonnie and uh, and and michael well other than interviewing them but i have great respect for just here's a couple of folks that got grapes for crying out loud talk about making you know sunshine out of lemons you right. know here's making a number one wine brand out of grapes right yeah. and and now you know they you know did well with that and i'm sure you know have financially done well for themselves and their families and have gone on to become you know, great leaders and pundits, in, like you mentioned, C-Suite and others um, telling folks, you know, how they did their success and coaching folks uh, to do something similar. So uh, I think that very first interview on Everyday MBA still r remains as one of my very first, uh, very favorite interviews and very favorite books we've ever reviewed. Beautiful. Well, I, I hope they'll appreciate that endorsement. And I remember meeting them through the C-Suite network. Jeffrey Hazlett, of course, we both know him. Yes. And uh, that was how we originally, uh, I ended up on your podcast because I was on his C-suite, uh, the bestseller uh, book club. No, wait, what was it? Bestseller TV, I think it's bestseller called. Bestseller TV, yes. And then that's yes. how you found me and then I ended up on yours. And anyway, it's uh, a whole a whole lot of fun, good stuff. Okay. And, and you so, know, it's all, it's all a web too. I know Jeffrey because he was on my very first 
podcast designing a document strategy. Jeffrey was the CMO at Kodak. Oh, right. Um, and yes. I knew I knew of Jeffrey from his time in the document industry. And so he was on my show. We talked about his book, um, Running the Gauntlet, I believe, was the first time he was on the show. And we got to, and here it was, we got to talking afterwards. He says, hey, Kevin, you know, we, I really like what you're doing here with this podcast. I've been thinking about starting this thing called C-Suite, C-Suite Network and the C-Suite TV and the C-Suite Radio. And we're still in the planning stages, but we like what you're doing. Would you be interested in doing a show for us for C-Suite? And I said, sure. And so BizCast was the very first show that C-Suite ever put out in terms of a podcast. And of course, that grew has grown into a big network of podcasts and TVs now, TV um, segments as well. Um, and so from that very that from that one little interview on my humble little podcast for document geeks, you know, that was a breakthrough that then led me into working for C-suite and producing shows. And that was a path forward that really opened the door for everyday MBA and having you on and, and so on and so forth. So it was a cascading series of events with, uh, with the podcast and Jeffrey Hazlett. Isn't it funny how you don't really know where one interaction is going to go? No, you don't. And and you can only work to be prepared to take advantage of those opportunities and recognize them when they happen. You know, another person may not have even saw that opportunity present itself. So I think as a freelancer, you're, you have to always be looking at ways that you can expand your relationship with the people that you know and and build those relationships and those moments when they happen um, to take advantage of kind of the lucky break, whatever, when it happens. Exactly. All right. So second question. Okay. A time in your career when you pushed through fear. Oh, yeah. Well, if you're thinking about coming, becoming a freelance provider, you will have fear. <laughs> <laughs> there is no doubt. I remember um, a couple, three, or a couple, three years in, um, you know, revenue was pretty far down <laughs> in terms of Kevin Crane and his business. Um, and with two kids in elementary school, uh, I think it was 4th of July. And it was also during the time when the gas prices were so, so high. And we were, we had the minivan and we were driving the kids to, you know, wildlife adventure or whatever it was. And I remember literally having anxiety about how am I going to pay for this tank of gas? How am I going to pay for our mortgage payment when we get home? You know, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing? I'm a dad and, and I'm barely making ends meet. I should be winning, you know, the bacon or whatever. And that was a really tough time. And I remember going to my wife, I was really quite upset saying, you know, I don't know, you know, what I, what I'm going to need to do. Um, maybe I just need to go down to the local grocery store and get a job as a checker or something, because I just don't know if I can handle uh, this, this whole freelance thing. It's too uncertain. And, and my wife in her wisdom talked me away from the edge <laughs> and said, look, it'll be okay. You know, you need to have faith in yourself and just faith that it'll, it'll work out. And um, sure enough, I did. And, you know, after I was feeling upset for a few days about that, I kind of took a big deep breath and just sort of got my pencil and paper out and started brainstorming again about, you know, what I can do and, and, and put into some place some, some changes and, and redoubled my efforts. And sure enough, I worked through that really, you know, pretty significant time of, I think I'm just going to hang it up and go back to work for the man or whatever. Um, and I think that was the, the hump that I got over. Uh, and then sure enough, a couple three years later, you know, I had, was way over that hump and, and never looking back. And how did you manage your 
because this is like a true resilient story, right? You keep going in the face of all the signs are like, go become an Uber driver, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I think every business owner at some point has to go through that to really truly appreciate and respect the beauty and the upside of earning a living as a, a freelancer or in the gig economy or as, you know, a solopreneur. Mm -hmm. Was it your, it was just your wife that really was your backbone that got you going like, so it is important who you have on your list. So your army of allies is hugely important. How did you keep yes. your attitude okay? Well, I think it was just a, a matter of, of having, you know, the, having faith that things would eventually work out and then uh, applying then working, working at it. So instead of being worried about it, I used that worry to get myself out of, off the couch and, you know, working hard to scrape up some new business. And sure enough, you know, it wasn't long thereafter when a large client engagement came along and then uh, I converted them into, as we were talking before, a, a retainer client. And that was, I think my first retainer client, it wasn't enough for everything I needed for the month, but it gave me a basis to feel like I could move forward from there. Right. And so I think it was just a matter of having courage and maybe just the stubbornness to not give up at, at a time when it felt like, you know, it just wasn't going to work. Cool. All right. Third question. Okay. If you could change one thing people do on social media, what would that thing be? I, well, other than posting pictures of food, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I believe that we all have a responsibility in our lives to be kind. Okay. And, and, and sometimes social media, especially in social media where you're anonymous, it can be easy to be critical. And so I th think that we should all stop for a moment when we're thinking about posting something that might be critical to rethink that and just think again about how would you feel if, if this was your daughter or your son or your mom or your wife or yourself? And, and would you feel good about posting that? critical or that's sort of snide, you know, remark on social media. I think it's easy to be unkind when we really should be making more of an effort to be kind. hundred percent. That's a great, great response. Uh, best or worst networking story. <laughs> best or worst. Oh man. Yeah. Well, um, I am not always the best, um, in, personal networking um, situations, you know, whether that's a business luncheon or, um, or, or what have you. Um, and one of the reasons is that I, as you can tell, <laughs> I've been terrible today at names, right? I, I know someone uh, and I don't remember their name. And, and I think it was the time when uh, I was at a networking event and it was a CEO of a company that I won't name. And I was networking with these folks and I, I knew I knew this person from somewhere, but I had no idea who they really were. And it wasn't that I said anything inappropriate, but then when, once I realized that this was a CEO of a rather big company that I was kind of like, you know, BSing around with, maybe not in 
a way that I would have if I had known exactly who I was talking with. Um, it, it wasn't something that gooned me <laughs> or had any necessarily bad fallout, but it, I did learn a lesson that I need to be sure that you, you need to be sure or be cautious uh, that you're operating in a space where if you don't know who it is that you're talking with, you make sure you, you treat everyone or, or conduct yourself uh, in a way that would be appropriate for, uh, for everyone involved and not be too, too casual or, and certainly forgetting names. I'm terrible with it and I still struggle with it every day. Uh, I don't know. There's probably techniques that would help me in fact <laughs> that I should really look into, but there are um, probably some in my uh, <laughs> original book from business cards to business. I, 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 you know, there probably are. I need to get that book out and, and look that up. But well, I think one of the first things was uh, to stop saying you're awful at remembering names because your brain will believe you. So I, rem I remember <laughs> faces and I remember the discussions that we have, but uh, yeah, oh, I know, I, I understand. And as I get older, I swear it gets harder. It does, yes, it does. Okay, before I ask you the last question, uh, where can folks reach you? Well, it's easy to find me. Thank you for mentioning Everyday MBA. You can find Everyday MBA at Everyday dash mba.com. It's a weekly business show. I interview folks just like you about success techniques and tactics that you don't necessarily learn in business school. So you can find me there. And if you're interested in finding out about my writing and content creation, you can always find me at cranegroup.com. That's C-R-A-I-N-E, cranegroup.com. Awesome. And are you active on LinkedIn? I know that. Um, yes. Are you active on the other social media handles or not as much so? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Kevin Crane out there on Twitter is my personal handle and Everyday MBA also has a handle that's really quite active as well. Okay, perfect. And the very last question I have for you is what is your favorite empowering quote? Ooh, favorite empowering quote. Well, you know what? Um, <laughs> My mom had these great quotes, um, and she, I, I still they still resonate with me. Many of them, um, uh, I can't repeat. But the the <laughs> one, <laughs> you know, the one that she used to say to me, and I think it goes back to what I was talking before: having the courage, you know, to get over those times of self doubt and really work through. It takes takes courage to know it'll be all right. She used to say to me a lot, maybe on the way to school, "Act like you know something, honey." You know, and meaning that you may not feel always that you know what you're talking about, <laughs> or you might feel like you're, you know, you're maybe an in inadequate or whatever. But if you, you take a deep breath and just say, you know what, I am good enough. I, I, I do know what I'm talking about. Um, and I do know, you know, I, I can act like I know something and, and I will do that. Um, I will literally think of my, my mom say entering those, those conferences or whatever, those social, uh, engagement opportunities that I may not feel um, 100% comfortable in. And I'll just say, you know, act like you know something and just be kind and everything will work out. And generally speaking, it always does. Oh, that's great. I love your mom. What great advice. <laughs> she, yeah, she has a lot of those that, uh, you know, that, that I carry with me. Yeah. Cool. Well, listen, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. You make an incredible guest. I know you were uh, feeling a little bit like, you know, the tables are turned and act you're on like the other you know side something. and uh, <laughs> act like you know something. So uh, to our Resiliency Ninja listeners out there, thanks again for being here with us. And uh, definitely do not forget to subscribe so you never miss an interview or one of the Friday episodes where I share some goodies and ideas on how to rethink resilience. And 
And uh, please share this with whoever you know. Uh, especially I'm in a guest today. You want to think about who is a freelancer who is out there who uh, needs to hear some of these tips that Kevin has given and also think about somebody who maybe just went through a corporate job downsizing. I think those are the two uh, key people who would really, really appreciate what we've just listened to. So thanks for that. And uh, until next time, dare I say, act like you know something. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.